Hello and welcome to the scan. We are excited to bring you this episode which is part of the George Institute for Global Health series. Primary healthcare or PHC as it's called is the building block of a healthcare system. Very simply put, primary healthcare focuses on providing people's needs as early as possible. This usually means that you have a facility near your house or at your doorstep. The facilities are not restricted to just treatment of the disease, but a continuum of care from health promotion, disease prevention to rehabilitation and palliative care. Hi, I'm Menaka Rao. In this episode of the scan, we have Bob Mash and David Perrys with us. They are both passionate about primary healthcare. David started working as a general practitioner in Australia. I started my career as a primary care physician, a, a, a GP. I trained in in Australia, and for me, a big motivating driver for working in primary healthcare actually came out of some frustration as a medical student. I I really didn't enjoy working in hospitals. Um, I found them very alienating places and. A, a very kind of dehumanizing experience for people who have to be in a hospital. Perhaps one of the more formative experiences towards the end of my undergraduate training was a period of working in Aboriginal communities in Northern Australia. Some work also I did in El Salvador just after the signing of peace accords from the many years of civil war that El Salvador had been through. And also some work in um, Papua New Guinea, and in in each of those three settings, I started to see and work in uh, community health services, and really um, it drew my passion and interest in more community oriented primary care and how uh, powerful that was as a care delivery model, but also how it um, supported the the rights of people to have access to to good health care. So for me, my journey into primary care was very much born from those formative experiences, and and then I worked for many years as a GP, um, particularly in in um, Aboriginal community controlled health services, and and I I guess through that work as a clinician, I started to see how important community controlled health service models were. Bob came from Scotland to South Africa in 1991. I. Came to South Africa in 1990, 91, uh, which was actually before the end of apartheid. And I came here from Scotland, actually, originally, where I trained as a general practitioner. But I came here to work with community health workers in the townships like Crossroads and Kailicha on the Cape Flats because these communities were sort of legally denied primary care at that point. And there was no South African doctor that was was stepping forward to work uh, in that space with uh, the non-government organizations. So, so I came actually for two years <laughs> to work in primary care with community health workers. I never left and worked clinically in Kailicha, which, as I say, it's sort of about, I don't know how many now, but that point about half a million people on the edge of Cape Town, mostly living in, in shacks at that point. They are both practitioners as well as researchers in this field. They are part of the Primary Healthcare Research Consortium or PHCRC. The consortium aims to conduct prioritized and policy-relevant research 
to support country and global efforts to build high quality phc systems bob heads the family and emergency medicine department at stellenbosch university in south africa he also coordinates the primary healthcare and family medicine network called prima farmed which is a network of family medicine and primary healthcare departments in sub-saharan africa covering about 25 countries he is also the chair of phcrc david is with the george institute in australia in today's podcast we learn more about the consortium and why we need to invest more in research on primary healthcare in 1978 134 national government members of the who signed the alma ata declaration this was done in an international conference on primary healthcare of the city of almaty in present day kazakhstan acknowledging the gross inequities in health the members committed to acknowledge primary healthcare as their national policy this is bob the way the concept of primary healthcare was really articulated at the alma ata conference which i think was what 1978 when government signed up to a very very progressive agenda around primary healthcare but then what actually happened subsequently was that a lot of governments sort of had a more selective approach to what they'd committed to and developed really a whole lot of vertical programs you know so so you would have a program to do hiv you'd have a program around family planning you'd have a program around uh malaria or tb or uh breastfeeding or whatever it was and these were sort of like programs that stood alone uh, to to a large extent were funded separately sometimes by separate donor funding research then also kind of like aligned with these specific programs and diseases but the vision of primary healthcare you know was that it should be you know high quality care for people of all ages close to them and it should address all of the common conditions that there shouldn't be some sort of inequity by disease you know because hiv's got a lot of funding you know you're going to get treated for hiv but if you come with diabetes well i'm sorry there's no program for that and so there has been a lot of um fragmentation of care there's been a lot of inequity because you know in in some countries in africa the donor funding for hiv has been bigger than the entire health budget for all other diseases ordinarily primary healthcare does not catch political attention the way tertiary healthcare does historically now certain diseases such as hiv prevention and treatment and control catch specific attention of both donors and state leaders there's a very small amount of money that goes into strengthening primary health care as a system you know so looking at for example development of the workforce looking at sort of issues of coordination continuity comprehensiveness looking at management and leadership looking at all the inputs that are required looking at population health management almost all the funding is connected in one way or another to a particular disease you know and so although the the research or the service may happen in the primary healthcare space it's often in this sort of vertical program and as the uh, the review actually that david peris uh, i think spoke about found one of the key things is integrating services so when the person comes to primary care they don't have to go to lots of different places or lots of different people to get different things it's an integrated sort of almost like a one stop shop service of high quality for people of all ages um you know across the whole life cycle if i look across our region you know one of the issues has been a very hospital centric view of the health system 
So, you know, so governments have often put a lot of money into central referral hospitals and into tertiary level specialist services, believing that this is kind of like the sort of uh, high profile flagship kind of project that will make the health system look good, but have often neglected to really uh, fund the workforce, to fund infrastructure, to fund equipment, to train people at an appropriate level in the primary healthcare space. Primary healthcare is, in many African countries is sort of the Cinderella you know, of, of the health system, whereas it should actually be the foundation and the sort of uh, gatekeeper of the health system. You know, so for example, if you, you know, at one point I went to Khabaroni in, in Botswana, they built an entire tertiary hospital, but I hadn't got any money, you know, to run it. So there's been this kind of view that as long as the central referral hospitals look good, then everything is okay. But of course, that is, it doesn't actually make a huge difference to the health of the community if you've got one really good referral hospital in the capital city. In 2018, the Global Conference on Primary Healthcare was held in Astana in Kazakhstan. In this conference, the world leaders commemorated the Almaty Declaration and emphasized the critical role of primary healthcare around the world. But the problems that were set out to be addressed in 1978 remain. Despite the progress, people in all parts of the world, especially the poor and people in vulnerable situation, had unaddressed health needs. So the Primary Healthcare Research Consortium is really a response to a sort of a global recognition, you know, that primary healthcare is a very important part of health systems in in all countries. You know, even back in 2008, the World Health Organization's uh, global health report was primary healthcare now more than ever. And of course, in 2018, the world's government signed up to the Astana Declaration, which was again a commitment to strengthen primary health care. So part of that whole uh, response to the need to strengthen primary health care was um, the need to look at what are the big research questions, the big unanswered questions, I suppose, about primary health care and how to implement it. There were sort of six founding members of the consortium who helped with that initial work, uh, much of which was published in uh, the BMJ Global Health, I think in 2018 or 19. And the, the six founding members that is the American University of Beirut, which is in Lebanon, the International Center for Diarrheal Disease, which is in Bangladesh, the Prima Famid Network, which I just um, explained to you, the George Institute in India and also Australia, and the World Organization of Family Doctors, which is, of course is in itself a global network, and then George Washington University uh, in the United States. So those were the, uh, the founding members. David is the director of the Global Primary Healthcare Program and the co-director of the Center for Health System Science with the George Institute. He worked with Aboriginal community where there is a movement on community-controlled primary healthcare even before the Alma-Ata Declaration. Um, this is something that in Australia is a movement that's now around 40 years old. It actually predates Alma-Ata, um, but it was very much aligned with the principles of Almata, the, the importance of community governance, the importance of self-determination of the um, types of health services that should be provided, and a comprehensive primary health care approach that was multi-sectoral. Th- these are all really strong principles in, in Aboriginal community-controlled health services um, here in Australia. And working as a, as a doctor in those services, I 
I again sort of saw the value of of that model of care. So when he joined George Institute in 2006, he started work with the same community even in his research career. I first started at, at the George really continuing from my clinical work on a large um national health services collaboration with Aboriginal community controlled health services in in Australia. Uh we were partnering with a number of these services to firstly learn from them what their governance models were, how how the care delivery models were were developed particularly focusing around chronic disease care. And then we did some work to look at um building stronger systems of care in partnership with these communities. The the beauty of being at the George Institute is that we do uh work globally and um we have large teams in in India and China and I started to share some of the work I was doing in in Australia with colleagues in India and China and we started to see a number of lines of work that were globally relevant or across the those regions and so then my my work broadened to really asking similar questions in in different settings so how what what are the factors that drive um access to high quality primary health care particularly focusing on underserved populations that uh, for various equity reasons are not um are missing out on access to best practice care and asking that question in a number of different health system contexts the research led to implementation research david explains what this entails the traditional definition of implementation research is is trying to understand knowledge to translation gap what are the reasons that something that has uh been perhaps well researched has a strong evidence base underpinning it why that may or may not get translated into routine um healthcare practice and there's a whole bunch of questions around trying to um understand and characterize what those gaps are understand how large they are and then there's um certain methods and theories and frameworks that can be used to then try and bridge that gap um and and doing that at both a smaller scale through to very large scale um pieces of work So our our research really straddles that knowledge to act, uh translation gap and trying to uh, explore that further. What often is not maybe thought about in implementation research is how that pipeline from knowledge to translation is influenced by a whole range of contextual factors um that that may support or or act as constraints to to that knowledge being translated so it's equally important to understand and study context as it is to understand the effectiveness of a of a health system strengthening strategy for example so often in implementation research where we're looking at both sides of that equation as david said the context has to be kept in mind while studying primary healthcare practices so for example in our digital health research we've done a number of trials in 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 number of settings with varying degrees of of success in terms of using digital health as a strategy to improve quality of care for for chronic disease care particularly focusing on quality of care for cardiovascular disease and uh, in Australia we did a study in partnership with general practices and Aboriginal community controlled health services where we implemented a decision support tool that was integrated with electronic health records and care providers could bring up that tool 
it would give them um, access to guideline-based um, recommendations and then they would use that as a, a support in making their decision-making in, in, in discussion with, with their patient. And what we found when we ran that as a trial was quite varied outcomes across the different health services that we worked with. And particularly, for example, in the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Services, they have a very strong culture of using um, audit and feedback tools to look at quality of care across their patient populations. General practices, however, don't have um, such a strong pr tradition. Some, some maybe larger practices do do that work, but the, a lot of general practices don't do that at all. So this is really an interesting and important context. Um, and what we found was that many aspects of our intervention strategy worked a lot better in the community controlled health service sector setting than it did in the general practice setting. And this was very much driven by the prevailing health system context that these services um, work in. Another major contextual factor that's often um, a big driver of the success of these initiatives is is leadership and and governance of the health service and health system in which in which these strategies are being implemented and again a key driver we found in that trial was the role of a champion a person who within a health service really got behind the the value of this strategy was able to communicate it to the rest of their staff and, and to their patients and the value of it and kept it at fresh on the agenda throughout the, the life of the, the project. We're not just asking the question, do decision support tools improve care practice? We're also asking what are the, maybe some of the mediating factors like um, the use of audit and feedback or the role of clinical champions that may then drive a better uptake of, of a decision support tool. That question is equally important in, in implementation research. The PHCRC Secretariat was established in New Delhi. The steering committee meeting was held in February 2020 in the early days of COVID-19 pandemic. Here is Bob. The consortium really got underway in early 2020, and of course was immediately confronted with the virus pandemic, which to a large extent changed the context and the landscape uh, within which we started to operate. So we have tried to sort of pivot a bit to some projects that are specifically focused on COVID. So we're busy at the moment setting up, in a way, a global survey of how different countries have utilize their primary healthcare systems to assist with the rollout of vaccinations. Um, we're hoping to complete that during the course of this year. And we recently published a, a review of how to strengthen primary healthcare really in sort of the COVID era, which was done for the World Health Organization in the, in the Asia Pacific region. And there's quite a lot of that focused on issues around integration of services, strengthening the workforce and the use of digital technology. The COVID-19 pandemic drove home the importance of primary health care. Bob explains why a strong primary health care is important while we consider COVID care. Look, the response to COVID-19 is not just about hospital beds, you know, and intensive care units. Primary health care, as I've said, in a sort of integrated way with public health, has a very important role to play in responding to the pandemic. And I think one can think of it in at least four or five different areas. 
the one, of course, is is in screening communities for COVID-19 and hopefully testing people, so screening and testing of communities for coronavirus. Of course, in a lot of low- and middle-income countries, testing is extremely limited. Also, of course, to treat and look after people with mild, potentially even moderate uh, COVID-19 disease in the primary care space, and to try and maintain essential services you know, to people who have issues and problems, of course, that, which continue that are not necessarily coronavirus related. But then you must also remember that a lot of the risk factors for coronavirus are chronic conditions such as HIV or diabetes, and that these also then become primary in terms of how do you um, how do you maintain services to keep people well controlled during the pandemic? And there have been quite a number of innovations uh, around this involving technology and, and telemedicine, you know, WhatsApp-based um, innovations, as well as things like uh, involving community health workers in delivering medications to people's homes to avoid them having to come to primary care facilities. And I think then, fourthly, the other really important aspect, which is probably underutilized, uh, is the ability of primary health care to engage with local communities and to share information and to sort of educate people about what's happening. And, and of course, this is important in terms of community buy-in and uh, support for interventions such as vaccinations um, and to provide people with actually accurate information about the, the benefits and the risks of vaccinations. And of course, there's a lot of resistance and misinformation out there. And then I think lastly, of course, Another real importance of primary health care is the ability to assist with rolling out of vaccinations to the population because of its reach uh, and coverage uh, in the communities. David says that the COVID-19 pandemic has only made the work of the consortium more urgent. There's a real importance for the Primary Healthcare Research Consortium to, to take an equity lens in, in contributing to, to the COVID-19 related research. COVID-19 has absolutely devastated health systems across the world and primary health care is no exception. And if anything, I think COVID-19 has underscored how important the Astana Declaration made pre-COVID. The principles of the Astana Declaration should be reaffirmed now more than ever in the, in the building back um, agenda. We know that the resilience of health systems is very much driven by the um, capacity of its primary health care and frontline health care um, service delivery. And we know across the world that when service delivery is disrupted or undergoing extreme pressure under, under shocks like, like the COVID pandemic, that it is inequitably experienced and inevitably the poorer populations of the world will miss out more because of the extensive disruptions to their lives personally and to the um, services that they, they need, essential services that they need. A lot of work on primary healthcare research done in the past has answers to how we can rebuild health systems in the post-COVID period. There's a lot of knowledge that's been accumulated around best practices and it should be retained as we um, as we move forward in, in and health systems rebuild. So we did a review of reviews. We'd already done a number of reviews for our previous um, work that I mentioned earlier, and we pulled out from those reviews in uh, four or five key areas around primary healthcare performance, governance, quality and safety, 
um, and models of care where we saw clear examples of, of best practice, um, what was the context in which it was those best practices were, were implemented and why we think these things are important in the revitalization agenda that, that's going to take place as we emerge out of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And the strategic levers are, are the most important. These are the, the big picture things. These are around political will, governance and leadership, adequate financing and adequate uh, community and civil society engagement. And, and we found many examples in uh, primary health care reforms that were successfully implemented where those strategic levers were absolutely central to achieving large-scale reform. We found many examples in the operational domain that when supported by the strategic levers were also critical to success. So a lot of things around multidisciplinary models of care, care for multiple diseases, leveraging primary health care teams to work together, quite a bit of evidence around the role of digital health and, and how digital health can improve access to, to high quality care. Evidence about effective engagement with private sector providers was another area um, that, that should be a key focus in, in the rebuilding agenda strategies for improving medicines and access to medicines, and also, uh, uh, importantly, around the role of research and monitoring and evaluation. Uh, a lot of people talk about um, we, a key factor of health system resilience is the learning health system, the health system that's continuously appraising what it's achieved, where its gaps are, and then reinvesting in strategies to, to address those gaps. So again, we felt that uh, research and monitoring and evaluation play a, a key part in, in the agenda. David says that COVID-19 pandemic has forced the world to reevaluate healthcare systems and the importance of primary healthcare. I am always hopeful of primary healthcare. I, I remain incredibly passionate about the value primary healthcare has to communities and to health as a human right and to societies in general. I think primary healthcare and ensuring that's on the agenda always in, in discussions around, around health system reforms um, is to me a high priority. And we've seen, we've seen so many examples over many decades where Countries that have invested in primary health care reforms on a really meaningful large scale have reaped the benefits of that for, for their citizens. So, so I think, um, yes, COVID-19 has knocked us down and um, it's forced us to reevaluate a whole set of things around how we structure our health systems. But I think um, primary health care will emerge as being one of the most important areas to reinvest in in order to to build back better and to have more resilient health systems make sure you subscribe to the scans so you don't miss any episode you can find us on apple podcast spotify google podcast or wherever you get your podcasts